Hi, this is Jonah Gray, and you're listening to Post Studio Visit, a podcast produced through the Ore Gallery in Vancouver, BC, Canada, by me, the Ore Gallery's curator of discursive projects. Every episode, I interview artists and sometimes writers, curators, or critics about what they're currently working on. Our conversations take place wherever the interviewee works, be it in their studio, their home, or a cafe, or what have you. In this episode, the second installment of our inadvertent puppet show series, I speak with artist and writer Jamie Hilder at his apartment just off Main Street. Right near, as you'll hear in the recording, the Heritage Hall and its clock tower, which has been an incredibly generative, shall we say, aspect of the local soundscape for him. Hilder's background is in English Lit, which he studied at UBC and SFU before a recent postdoc at UCLA. His exhibition history includes collaborative shows at 221A, your very own Or Gallery, and Artspeak with Brady Cranfield, and a 2007 solo show at the Charles H. Scott Gallery. The first thing I asked Hilder when we sat down was what he'd been working on recently. It's something I've been working on for the last eight years, I think. So it's uh, the idea of an economist's aesthetic came in 2008 when I was in California and I kept hearing about the economy and kept being confused about how people were using the word economy. And so I started um, listening to audio courses on economics, which was super aggravating, like first year university audio courses. And um, realized that I was right and that the people still don't really understand (laughs) what they're talking about when they use the term economy. And at the same time, I was reading Le Corbusier's Towards a New Architecture for my dissertation. And he talks about the engineer's aesthetic as being the the dominant mode of modernism. So everyone Mm -hmm. started making things that looked like factories and really um, revering industrial aesthetics. And I was like, well, it seems like the way people talk about economy now and economics in the media, but also just in everyday life is more of an aesthetic um, habit than an intellectual or critical habit or perspective. And so I was like, well, if there's no engineer's aesthetic anymore, then maybe there's an economist aesthetic. So thinking about how economics as it's been, um, developed through academic economics is causing people to think and act and speak in a particular way, in a way that like an aesthetic, um, proclivity would. And during that time, I was listening to a, uh, an audio course and I've never been able to find this audio course again. It, it was a brief mention of a photographic archive by Carl Menger or collected by Carl Menger, who was the leader of the Austrian school of economics. Um, and for his 70th birthday, which was in 1910, he wanted photographs of the world's greatest economists. And so all of these economists, um, sent him photos of themselves. And the, the thing that I remember listening to this, I don't know if it was Timothy Taylor or Israel Kurtzner or something, Rookheiser, who was narrating the, um, mm-hmm. 
the audio course was this little anecdote that said Carl Manger was very pleased that all of the um, the the portraits were in three quarter like royal portrait um, style because Carl Manger thought that you could measure the eminence of an economist based on the size of his beard, and I was like. <laughs> <laughs> and so I'd been learning about Karl Menger versus, and he's the leader of the Austrian school. And he was in this vicious methodological disagreement with the German historical school. And so this, that kind of tickled me. And, uh, um, and I like thinking about the Austrians and the Germans being so antagonistic to each other and the Germans in the kind of Marxist tradition being like, no, we have to pay attention to history we have to pay attention to the cultural influences on behavior um, and economics is not the same everywhere. And the Austrians were very um, insistent. You have to pay attention to the size of people's beards. <laughs> yeah. And then, and then the, the Austrians were very insistent that all of that stuff was like un, unnavigable. So you couldn't, you couldn't make any sense out of it. And so they were like, just let's find universal rules that everyone applies to in every case. And then that is, um, extrapolate that, from that. Yeah. And then that's economics. And so there's a real schism in the late 19th century between like what economics became post, uh, Austrian school and what sociology came. So Max Weber was like the last, um, kind of the last member of the German historical school. And he's known primarily as a sociologist now. Um, and then the, uh, the Austrians are what kind of shaped economic discourse as we know it now. So it shift to mathematization, um, neoclassical economics being like people behave rationally, like a rational agent theory that all seems to come from, from the Austrian stuff. And so it, it was this kind of the mixture of learning about economic history and the ridiculous photo archive collected by this, uh, this economist, Carl Menger was what kind of stuck in my, my head. And then I started thinking about an economist aesthetic and started wanting to, um, to learn more about it but never had something available to me with the photo archive. And that's when I started working with Brady, uh, Brady Cranfield. And we, we were like, we got to get this archive. So I remembered that it was housed at Johns Hopkins. So it's not, I don't feel like it's all made up because we found the archive. <laughs> the archive actually exists and it was donated by Carl Menger's grandson or, I think it was his grandson who was a mathematics professor at Johns Hopkins. Okay. So there is that kind of like that disciplinary legacy. And he, uh, so we, we contacted, we said, is there this archive? They're like, yes, we have this archive. We were like, can we borrow it? And they said, no, you can't borrow it. I was like, we don't want it for ourselves. We'll, we'll put it like, can we take it to SFU and they'll put it on? Well, they'll show it. And they said, no, you can't borrow it. And so like, you were even thinking of having an exhibition at that point? Yeah. Was... And then, um, and then we were like, well, what about if we exhibit it at Johns Hopkins? So you don't have to transport it 
that's fine. And they're like, let's be clear. You will never <laughs> exhibit this archive of photos. And we're like, huh, okay. Well, what about if you scan them for us? Cause we, we want to see it and we don't want to, you know, we were thinking of traveling to, uh, to Baltimore to see it. Um, and they were like, oh yeah, we can scan it. We can scan oh. it. No problem. It'll be $900. And we're like, okay. I mean, Brady and I had a grant for a related project, I think. And we were willing to, to spend that. And so they did, they scanned it. Um, we asked them to scan front and back just to see what was on the back of all of the photos. And they sent us all of them and, uh, and they didn't send us an invoice. So they sent, they were the invoice to follow. (laughs) And that was, I think it was two years ago. So they still haven't charged us. And now I'm not paying because we, (laughs) we have the, uh, we have the archive. And I think we still didn't know what to do with it. Um, we had it for a couple of years. We were going to arrange it based on kind of testosterone because we were, at least I was really interested in Jim Cramer, the, like the CNN mad money shouter, right? <laughs> Just with like his show was this circus, um, circus set of him taking calls and telling people whether to invest or sell or buy and he would hit buttons and things would fall from the, the sky and it just seemed like a ridiculous moment in um, in like market culture and, and economics and he's bald and very aggressive and we we're thinking of doing like a uh, um, a genetic ordering of the um, of the archive based on based on baldness <laughs> and uh and that didn't really get developed and then and then i had this idea to make um a puppet show and so that's what i'm working on now i'm working on a script um it'll be shot against uh, a green screen there are 179 economists there's one woman oh wow it's massive yeah one woman one japanese economist and then the rest are white white males um, the Japanese economist makes a little more sense when you, um, well, this is what I've learned about when I was trying to research the German historical school, that the Japanese and the Germans were really, um, together on historical economics in the last, like the latter part of the 19th century, early part of the 20th. And strangely, the German historical school's method really took a nosedive around the thirties and and so did the Japanese. And then you didn't really hear from them again, like the historical method. So yeah, that's, that makes a little more sense why there's one Japanese, um, economist. Cause he was in, there were a lot of Japanese economists trained in Germany who would have had connections to the Austrian school or at least economists of that same period in that same region. And then the one female economist is from Bryn Mawr. She's an American economist who taught at Bryn Mawr. And I don't know too much about her. That sounds like the beginning of a joke. <clears throat> there were 179 <laughs> economists. One Japanese, one woman. And then, um, so trying to figure out what to do with a photo archive as puppets. So, I mean, the puppets won't be Muppets and they won't be marionettes and they won't be sock related. They'll be photographs right so two-dimensional it's tough to make um it's tough to make good-looking puppets out of photographs and so i got Stephen wechuk um to to help me because 
before and like for months i was like the uh, the puppets will just be a, a photo on a stick you know that'll bounce around mm-hmm. and and then brady was like you have to have the mouth move and i was like okay yeah and i just i left the puppets on the side of my table for months being like i don't know how to make a mouth move with any type of accuracy or uh, i think i tried one test and i cut up some photos and they just bent and it it didn't work there was tape and glue and i had no idea and then stephen wechek um whose specialty is kind of for puppets offered some some really good solutions so um so they will be two-dimensional they will have moving mouths um the i think i'm going to adjust them like i'm going to add hair where there's hair like fake hair add fabric where there's fabric maybe put like wire glasses on them so that the photos are kind of animated in a way not just actively or physically i mean like through movement but animated through um through additions through material additions and i think that was like um that was part of my insertion into the archive so how do you animate the archive and how do you animate an archive that functioned for this economist as a uh, like a truth value right like this was his his approach to to photography was to be like you hear that fucking clock yeah i hate that clock um the uh we should come back to that and you can talk to us about the clock it's it's related <laughs> it's related to the economist aesthetic that's the most industrial protestant clock chime i think that i've ever heard unimaginably um depressing um but i mean the photo fo- the photos function for kalmanger as this kind of truth moment and this mm-hmm. objectively measurable information and i mean if you if you're looking at the history of photography and the way that truth or data gets um gets represented in photographs then i think there's something to be there's something that should be done with photographs in order to cast doubt on that stability right? and so that's uh that's that the other the script is in development developing a script the <laughs> um the thing that i'm trying to implement is that Carl Menger was the the tutor for um Crown Prince Rudolf who was the son of I forget his name the emperor the Austro-Hungarian emperor and okay. and he was involved uh, Menger wasn't involved but Crown Prince Rudolf was involved in the Meierling affair which um in the 1890s I think he had been married off by his father to another it was a political marriage um and he was this very kind of i guess he was in his early 30s very good looking um kind of playboy emperor's son prince crown prince and didn't really like his wife that much um fell in love with a 17 year old baroness i think uh some low level aristocracy but just fell hard in love and was went to his dad and was like i want an annulment i don't want to be married to this uh this sham 
I don't want to be in this sham marriage anymore. The father was like, you have your responsibilities as a future emperor. Like, it doesn't matter if you're in love, like deal with it. Your responsibilities and duties are greater than your own desires. And he was like, okay, fine. And he went to his hunting lodge, which was at Maryland. And he took his 17 year old uh, lover and I think shot her or fed her poison, Yeah, I think, and then shot himself in the head. And so it was the crown prince committed suicide because, you know, he wasn't allowed to live life well, right? Or the way that he wanted to live life. He was kind of fed up with his, um, his duties or responsibilities. And then his cousin, I think, took over his spot as the, um, as the next in line to the Austro-Hungarian Empire. And that cousin was Archduke Franz Ferdinand. And so, so it led to some stuff. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, but the more that I read about um, Merling and Crown Prince Rudolf and Austria and the kind of end of um, the 19th century in Austria, it became really um, apparent that the bourgeois in Austria were like going through some type of transformation some shift to modernism there like the suicide rate in Vienna was higher than than anywhere else they were also a little behind the times in um, modernization like the they didn't get electric streetlights for a long time um, but they were they were just in trouble and I think they were in trouble in charge like they were top of yeah. top of Europe and um, and there are all these stories of really fantastic public suicides like people just jumping off bridges young lovers rich young lovers going on a picnic and then a murder suicide is it decadence like just extreme decadence it might be like just the emptiness of of wealth and power um and an inability to talk about love right or like a social duty taking over or just being unbearable Hmm. i remember my one experience of being in austria was in vienna and I had never really understood architectural modernism, I don't think, coming from the West Coast, where pretty much everything is just a result of, in some way, of architectural modernism, like just everything's a box. Uh-huh. And there I realized, I was like, ornament is <laughs> incredibly <laughs> oppressive. And it's just on every, you know, there's a huge, like, you know, war scene being played out in, like, guild, gilded yeah. bronze statues on the front of every building. It's nuts. And... It's like, oh, yeah, that's now I understand modernism. Let's get rid of it. (laughs) Yeah. Refers to a dead, dead idea. And so this is like I'm filming the puppet show, I think, against a green screen. And um, and the footage behind it will be made up of maybe graphs, maybe photographs, um, maybe there's there's a series of films about the Maryland affair. Like there was one very early on, like I think in the 30s. Um, there, I think there's actually a silent film as well. Like there were three films about the Maryland affair in the, between 1930 and 1945. Like they just kept filming this story because it was this kind of most romantic story <laughs> that ends, Sounds in, like a great, ends in a murder-suicide. <laughs> yeah, but it was, it was supposed to be like the height of romance. Like he gave up emperor like the the position of leading an empire for love to die for love and so the 
the larger question I think is how do you imagine a world whose economics would have some explanation for love and suicide and irrational behavior and desire um, and cultural effects on behavior, right? Because the Austrians, their economics was like, that stuff's too messy. We can't figure it out. Don't worry about it. That's not economics. That's sociology. And so what would the world look like if we didn't um, let our economic policy be run by universals, right? Or logical structures, if we had some room for messiness or, um, or love, you know, and the problems that come with love. So what is an economics of love, I think, is the, the question that I'm trying to write through and present in the, in the puppet show. You said that you might incorporate the footage of those films. Like, is the Meierling affair then a kind of a, a key sort of thematic dimension of the play? Or? Yeah, I think so. I mean, there will be, like, talk of love. The, um, the script will be... Um, mostly people talking about irritation or surprise. <laughs> you know? I like how you pitched that. There will be talk about <laughs> Oh, yeah, there will be. Um, and, um, and then I think that will match with... There might be some scripting of logical structures, logical economic structures, but the, the challenge is to not make it seem didactic, you know? to explain the history of the German historical school and the Austrian school and talk about how stupid economics is and economic discourse. Cause that's my impulse is just <laughs> to put on this didactic puppet show explaining the Methodenstreit, like the, they had a name for it, the, the methodological disagreement where it was just a couple pamphlets that Karl Menger wrote. And then Gustav von Schmaler wrote back and insulted like very cryptically, um, Karl Menger, and it's it's fascinating and funny to me. I just don't think it's gonna make a good artwork. You know, it's um, it might make a good lecture. So that's that's the challenge. And the um, the script is coming along slowly. I kind of have I had last summer booked for research script writing production three months, and uh, and then I just did research. And so I didn't get into production and I didn't get into script writing. So that's this summer is kind of earmarked for, for yeah. that. Um, but that's, yeah, that's what I'm working on. At the risk of getting kind of too processy, what is the, what you, have you done other projects like that that have required scripts or? No, no, Brady and I, made a we have a grant that i think we've had it for three years we keep having to tell the canada council that we're still working on it um and it was for a a film and it was one of those grants that we got it and i just kind of like let out a disappointed sigh because <laughs> i knew <laughs> i knew how much work it was going to take uh i knew it was it was like ambitious and um and i didn't really think we were up for it <laughs> and then and then I think we started the uh the script writing process and it just it didn't it didn't work like we didn't mm-hmm. there was no way we could write together and I don't think either of us wrote on our own very well either so this is um the thing about a puppet show is it's a 
there's no set length. There's no developed narrative. It's just a bunch of vignettes kind of together. And because it will be, it's actually going to be filmed, you said, against a green screen. So yeah. their final result is going to be a video? Yeah, it'll be a video of a puppet show. Um, which is, I could see, well, I wouldn't say people would accuse me of this. I would accuse myself of this, of it being kind of a coward's way out, you know. But, um, but I just don't think I can develop puppetry skills to the point where I would want to make a, a live puppet show. Sure. I also that's that's my performance history is I never perform for live audience. You know, it's always it's always video. There's something about. Um, that's not true. I saw you do a performance in Banff. Oh yeah, that went horribly. <laughs> that was that was horrible. Uh, yeah, so that's why I don't do it anymore. You know, that's. Um, But that, okay, so that but that still that was a performance that nobody knew was a performance, mm-hmm. right? And then my other performances have been done, you know, live, but for different audiences, for people who don't know that they're watching a performance. So the idea of announcing a performance time and date, and then inviting people to come, and then doing it in front of them, is not part of my my practice, and I don't think will be <laughs> anytime soon. The are you looking at different precedents in puppet puppet shows? Like, have you has that kind of been a mm. been a component of how you're you're beginning to think about the project? I looked at Punch and Judy's stuff, um, which is a tradition going back like pretty far, starting in the Italian, but then um, being developed in England, and so they, it was like one of those super violent uh, puppet shows for children, and they have their own kind of box and and a curtain and I was thinking of making like a small puppet box and a proscenium and having it that way but I I opted for the the green screen um Denise Reiner actually suggested making or looking at the history of political German puppetry which I haven't yet but thinking about um filming it in one of those boxes so I think when she goes to Germany I'm going to ask her to send pictures or descriptions of of puppet shows there I don't think I'll change it that much, but it's something that um, that I'll think about. And then I don't. I haven't looked too much into history of puppetry. Um, have you looked into the history of puppetry? You got any Not suggestions? <laughs> <clears throat> it's Bopa. It's Bopa. Well, I. <laughs> it's funny. I don't know if I could explain her project, but. I think her one has a lot to do with the history of shadow puppetry. Yeah. And our shadow puppetry as a form is kind of a, is kind of an aspect of the thematic content of the, of the piece as well. Yeah. And and I think that one really fits, but I haven't thought too much about, and because they're photo puppets, right? So they're not Muppets, which I've spent a lot of time thinking about. I love, I love the Muppets, but, um, but it's not that sophisticated, uh, like a puppetry. Same with marionettes. Um, I had a conversation with somebody who was talking about, like the the mechanism of control in puppetry, specifically marionettes, as it was related to, like video game consoles. And I was like, this guy's thought way more about things than I have. Mm-hmm. 
<laughs> I told him if he comes up with anything to, to email me, I don't expect to hear from him. But, but no, I haven't. I think that might happen more through the, the process of, uh, of production and then rehearsal and then matching it. I, the other thing is that I don't necessarily, I'm not tied to me doing all of the voices. Um, yeah, I didn't even, <clears throat> I didn't even think about that. Yeah. What's the, well, I was thinking of maybe recording the dialogue with, uh, with other people and then animating it like at the puppet show. So playing it kind of live to perform to, and then kind of layering the sound in after, um, the reason why I was thinking of that is because there's a Japanese economist and there are German economists. And if I do the accents, um, I'm going to be horrible at it and people aren't going to like it. So I don't know. I haven't decided whether I'm going to do the accents. The Japanese accent is specifically a little more touchy than the German accents. Because they all have accents speaking in English. Yeah. (laughs) Um, and then, uh, if I got, if I got my Japanese friend to do it, it would be less, less offensive. But I still haven't made the decision on uh, on accents. You can always make fun of German and Austrian accents. So I was thinking of getting. Yeah, I feel like that's like a fundamental baseline of comedy that. Yeah. Will never be offensive. We got at least another 150 years of making fun of German and Austrian accents. Um, but I'm, that just comes. Maybe that's that's a question <clears throat> that I've thought of actually recently in relation to the um, to the. Wallander series mm-hmm. where there's Kenneth Branagh in the in British Sweden. one takes place in Sweden. They all have British accents. Yeah. <clears throat> and this isn't so much as kind of a thing where I'm going to like harp on about how much better the Swedish version of the show is, but more that that seemed like a convention that was fine up until like not that long ago that there would be you know, um, a dra- dramatic story that's taking place in another country and they would just have British accents. Mm-hmm. But then for some reason or other, it seems really jarring now. Yeah. <laughs> the, the new series Versailles, which is the most popular series in France right now, but not anywhere else is so with, hot in France right now is with, uh, English actors. And well, a friend of mine is in it and he had to learn how to, he has to do like Queen's speech, like, uh, like British accent and he's Canadian. So it's odd. And I was like, I, I would hope the French would reject that, you know, no, but they're they all for it. it. They're part of the problem. <laughs> <laughs> they're definitely part of it. Um, and so that was, yeah, that's something that I've, I've thought about like, because it was natural. I was like, I'm going to make a puppet show. It's going to be with these German and Austrian economists. It's going to be an English there might be some accents and then I was like, Oh yeah, it's going to be in English. Like that was just a natural decision for me, partly because I can't write any other language. Um, and that my audience, I always imagine my audience to be Vancouver, you know, it's <laughs> possibly because I rarely show outside of Vancouver. Uh, I would like it's to aspirational. Yeah. <laughs> so I think I used to have, when I was making work before it was, I imagined three, three people, I guess four total, but I was like, I have to make work Does four include yourself. No. So it's five. <laughs> I have to make work that these three people don't think are is stupid or that has something in it for these three people. And one was my parents who don't care about art at all. 
Oh, that's a tough, tough crowd. Yeah, there was a lot of pressure on myself. One was Serge Gilbeau, uh, because I've seen him be super dismissive of a lot or dismissive of a lot of things. And one was Jeff Dirksen, who I think was the one that I admired the most out of the out of the three. No offense, mom and dad. Um, but now <laughs> I listen to this. <laughs> but now I think I'm gonna send them the link. <laughs> now I I don't think about any of them when I make work. So I don't know if that's a uh, if that's a good or bad thing. I st- I still will talk to Jeff about it, but I don't need to talk to Serge or my parents about it. Sure. Well, that also seems like a positive personal transformation. Yeah, story. I think so. Right, maturity. It took me a while. The so practice has evolved. Yeah. Since we're here and we were hearing the the um, the chime in the background, we are, for the record, we're mm-hmm. in Jamie's apartment mm-hmm. slash studio. That fucking clock. What is the <laughs> what's the deal with the clock? The clock is, that's Heritage Hall, so it used to be the old post office, and um, and it chimes from 9 a.m. to 9 p.m. every day, uh, and it is the most industrial, joyless chime you can imagine. It's like a metal pipe hitting a, another metal <laughs> pipe, like it's an iron pipe falling on the ground or something and bouncing on concrete, and it, uh, the history of that building is that it was, it was the old post office it fell into disrepair for like 40 years. That clock never worked. And then in the nineties, in some type of heritage fervor, they were like, Hey, wouldn't it be great if we got this clock working again? And, and so they tried and, um, and I moved to this neighborhood in 99. And since then that clock has been regularly wrong. Like it would be like, it would, it would just be stuck for days. It would stop. Um, Sometimes it would chime at like 2.26. It would chime like seven times at 2.26. That's the heritage. <laughs> and, um, and then last year it chimed somebody, I think the clock mechanic or clock repair person was in the hospital getting surgery and some underling came in to fix the clock and reversed it so that it chimed from 9 p.m. to 9 a.m. <laughs> and I am <laughs> I am close enough that I hear like every chime and it bounces off the buildings and reverberates through the alleys and it woke me up every hour on the hour for well from like midnight to to 8 a.m. and every time with just like such anger because I've been angry at that clock for so long. And so I, you know, wrote a couple brutal emails to the building manager of heritage hall. Um, and she was apologetic. And then I kept writing emails like suggesting that we don't need the clock anymore. Right. Because it's this holdover from an industrial time. What is the heritage of the clock? It's when, um, like the working day was really kind of enforced and in the development of Vancouver as this Protestant industrial. I like that you laid out like a historical argument for it. It was, it was a long one. And she was like, I'll take your concerns to the board. <laughs> AKA, I'm putting this in the shredder yeah, right now. Like, fuck off. And then, um, and I guess the clock is kind of cared for or um, run by this group called the Friends of the Clock. And and then my... Uh, Sounds sinister. A, a close friend of mine moved in across the hall. So he's at the front of the building and hears it even louder and he was, he did 
like he did an electroacoustic composition in school and was talking and now he's in clinical psychology and he talks about the the effect of noise in a city on anxiety levels you know so like people who live by airports they have these um you know um higher rates of anxiety and it's just an unhealthy way to live with with noise coming in <laughs> and all the time and it's the same thing around like loud motorcycles and uh and i was trying to make an argument for the clock being shut down based on like psychological damage to the residents and nobody went for that either and um and that led me to this uh this course that i'm teaching on time and i told my students this yesterday my first class yesterday and i was like there's my first slide was this stupid ass clock on heritage hall and i was like i hate this clock i hate this so much it's this holdover um from industrial time the labor time of like or the the time of the working day a controlled controlled population yeah and also we don't need a clock anymore to call us into a common space like we're in a common space all the time as a result of shifts in production and in um the fact that we have technology on us at all times telling us what time it is these personal alarms um instant communication around the world we don't need a dumbass clock like chiming us into collective being because that's not nobody's being brought into collective being by this clock anymore and so it's just well, except in their shared annoyance at it yeah maybe and so i've been trying to figure out um how to get it shut down and lorna brown lives like next door and i kind of accosted her at an opening a couple of weeks ago to see if she was as irritated by it as i am and she doesn't she doesn't really care um, she she's kind of on my side but loosely on my side <laughs> and i was hoping that she would take it on and be the face of the anti-clock movement or at least somebody without a public persona like <laughs> who doesn't have to teach and who doesn't have to show work um could um could go to city hall and stand up in a city hall meeting and be like let's make a movement to get rid of this clock because i can't i can't handle the ridicule that would come if, if that were me i'm just not that eccentric uh, a person to to really lead the charge i do think about like creating a petition like uh putting a notice on every building within earshot of that clock uh, to see how many residents are annoyed or fed up or just like this is extra credit for the students in your class it was one of the first things i said copy and paste these yeah petitions around the the neighborhood the first thing i said was like if any of you can get this shot this clock shut down a plus in any course that i teach for the rest of your education like not i'm I'm not even joking i would i would go through the the um the facade of teaching them something or marking their assignments but it would be an a plus And so that's what that's what led to this, you know, this more in-depth investigation of the history of time and and what it means to to people because the way that um the the course was triggered it was like I was thinking about that clock I'm always thinking about that clock and how much I hate it. Oh, the thing is we did get it shut off for like 6 months and the the woman was like I promise not to turn it back on until it's fixed and I was like what about just not turning it back on? And she said, no, people like it. And I was like, what, what people like, show me the people that like that clock. The silent, the silent majority. I think it's, yeah, it's the tourists or the people who walk down the street or maybe the people who work here or the, the BIA. I'm pretty sure it's the business improvement association that 
adds it to the list of charm in Mount Pleasant. And, um, and so that was in combination with, it was something that Raymond said actually, after he visited Haida Gwaii, it was just like this offhand comment that was, he was like, do you know, they have a 500 year plan for their great cedar. And I was like, what the fuck? How do, how do you make a 500 year plan? I'm thinking about like, if that clock's going to chime in an hour. Right. And so the, that led to this investigation of what kind of culture have we developed where we can only um, see like a few days into the future or one generation into the future or um, like a, a five-year economic plan or this time of crisis where we keep talking about economics and these economic forecasts and we're only look, able to look um, into the future of financial technologies, right? So like a 25-year mortgage would be the horizon of our future. Like, oh, when we pay off the the mortgage if you're you know in a position to have a mortgage. in some other city yeah <laughs> yeah <laughs> and and so that's what that's what led me to kind of think about a course on time not audaciously open and ambitious course on time so we'll see how it goes one class in one class in it's still so far okay. so good we've talked about the clock I feel like I've accomplished most of what I've set out to do. Just, just proselytizing and being bringing people into a protest around the clock. I got thirty new, thirty new clock protesters. Maybe I think some of them might think I'm full of shit. But hey, but you're grading them. That's right. A little thing called power. Okay. Also, in your apartment while we're here, you have a an ongoing project mm-hmm. called the Shelved Gallery. Yeah. <laughs> Somebody told me we can see it from our wristing. Yeah, somebody told me that shelved is uh, is the term they use to describe smuggling drugs in your ass. Really? Yeah, I think I think it was Bubba actually that told me that, <laughs> um, which is a little different than what I had in mind. Like you've been shelved. Yeah, that that drug those drugs be shelved. Wow. Yeah. Are you going to shelf those drugs? Like. Uh, and um so that came about from a mistake <laughs> and a uh i bought a projector a couple of years ago i think um i don't know why i did i think i was oh i bought it in anticipation of getting a grant and i didn't get the grant <laughs> those are the best kind of purchases <laughs> i was like i'll be okay i'll be okay and i'm not i'm sort of okay but that was definitely that was supposed to be a grant um, reward. It's and a great projector, though. Thank you. I yeah, it. it's. I think it's like a childhood dream of mine <laughs> to have a large projection or a large screen just to watch bad sitcoms and television. It, so, in that way, the grant was an enabling fiction that allowed you to achieve yeah. actually something that was more fundamental and important. I think even the failed grant applications do um, <laughs> do give you something. And so that's. Um, and when I when I imagined the the projector in the room, I was like, I'll just put it behind the couch uh, because it's got horizontal keystoning. And what I didn't realize was that horizontal keystoning not only degrades an image, but will only adjust an image over the course of like a ten foot throw, um, like ten to twelve inches, right? And I was planning on putting it on the side of the room which would have required like a four or five foot horizontal K 
keystoning. Got it. Well, actually, and just to describe it, <clears throat> if that's that's the location that it was yeah. originally going to be. Yeah. So it's set up in a way that looks almost like a side table kind of yeah. location beside the couch rather than above the couch. Yeah, it's about head level if you're sitting on a couch right beside it. So not in, not understanding like how loud a projector would be and not understanding the physics of light projection. I put that shelf up without testing the projector. Like I had the projector and then I, uh, <laughs> I, I put the shelf up. I, um, was proud of myself. It was fairly level as far as shelves go and anchored well anchored into the wall. And then I put the projector on it and tried to focus the image and it did, it did not work. It, it was so far off, <laughs> like so far off. And so I had to buy a ceiling mount and now it's mounted kind of upside down on the ceiling. And, um, and I was like, well, I don't know what to do with that shelf. Um, because it doesn't make sense as a shelf, like it's to, to the side of the couch. It's gotta be the worst lit gallery in the, in existence too, because it's just except for the Vancouver Art Gallery. <laughs> That's another story that I'll gripe about later. Um, and so I had been thinking about doing this. Somebody was like, "Well, why don't you run a gallery, Jamie?" And I was like, "Because I don't want to. Like, I think that would be a horrible, uh, horrible life for me. Not you know, there are gallerists out there that have good lives, but." Um, also, I don't have any money and I don't want to depend on selling art for money. And, and so I was like, well, I could just do, I could make it a domestic gallery, um, and not have opening hours. Cause I mean, Barb Choi did the allergy gallery like years ago and it was just a gallery in an apartment. Um, and there's, there are quite a few galleries in apartments that have apartment gallery, the apartment gallery, for instance, um, that have these opening receptions and opening hours and if you want to come by they can look at it and then they kind of change the space so it looks like a gallery so you're in a way kind of living in a, in a gallery and that never really seemed like something i was willing to do um and so i was like well i'll turn it into a gallery and nobody will see it it'll just be <laughs> it'll be for me and what i thought that i could exchange with the artists was they would lend me the work for six weeks i would give it back to them after six weeks and i would write something about it and i would um put it on my website or a website the shelf gallery website and so i'd take pictures of it i'd write about it i'd make them dinner so that was the other thing i was gonna borrow the work i wanted to value the work um and so i would make them dinner and i would write about it and that would be the exchange and they would get it back and then i would uh that would be the extent of the, the exchange for the, uh, for the privilege of exhibiting, I guess, or for the kind of the, the experience of being with their, their artwork and taking it seriously in a space for six weeks. And so they, they were supposed to be, I think ambitiously, I was like, I'll do one a month and then turned it to one every six weeks. And I think this one's Colleen's been here for, it'll be here for two and a half months, I think, before I get around to writing about it and then returning it. But, but I've liked all, all three of them. Uh, I started with Abbas, Abbas's Swan, um, and then Elizabeth Zvonar's hand incense, um, incense holder. 
and now Colleen Brown's um, pocket sculptures. So it's really, uh, it's really nice. I I like those artists, all those artists very much. I think they're smart people. They're people I want to have dinner with, and um, and like to write about. the The other part is that it makes me write, which I don't do willingly. Um, and so if I have some type of obligation to somebody that I like and to, to work that I like, then it's, it's more likely that I'll actually write. But it turned out the way that I write about it is like, I, it's not for a publication. It's not for that type of audience. So as it's, it's a domestic gallery. And so it starts with generally really domestic feelings, you know, so there's a lot of, um, I was thinking about this piece while I was sitting in my living room reminded me of this other thing that I think about when I sit in my living room. And so it's a, it's an odd, it's an odd way of writing about art that, that I've done twice now. We'll see how it kind of goes through the next, um, few iterations, but I was thinking of having a vitrine gallery too, but I think that's just too much, too much space in my apartment devoted to artwork. Vitrined gallery. The vitrined. <laughs> You're gonna vitrine that weed. Yeah. I wonder what that means in street parlance. Shit, I don't know. All right. Well, thanks so much for for yeah. chatting. Hey, my pleasure. Thanks. Appreciate it. I feel like that's a good. Thanks for coming over. <laughs> good. <laughs>